Also, uh, a key time in the life of any football fan is watch his comebacks happen on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays. But really, the big comeback that we want to talk about at any given time are the comeback seasons that God places us in and the God that really makes it happen, that we come back from wherever we have been to be in the best place for our lives and for God's will. If you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn them to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah chapter one. We'll probably walk through the entire book of Jonah today as we look at what it means to come back from disobedience. Come back from disobedience. Now, while you're turning to Jonah, while you're finding Jonah, Jonah's only four chapters, so there's only a couple of pages in the Bible that has the book of Jonah. You may have to go to your table of contents first. It's kind of to the left side of Matthew and Malachi and so forth. It's the latter part of the Old Testament, but you'll want to get your Bible and look at the book of Jonah. Let me just say this today. I want to encourage you to reach out to someone that needs to have a comeback in their life. Someone who is far, far from where they want to be, someone who's far, far from where they need to be, and they need God to orchestrate a comeback in their lives. And I'm gonna tell you today, the stories we've been looking at remind me of how God can orchestrate a comeback, how God can cause us to be right where we need to be. And, and I can tell you that by inviting someone to come hear these messages week after week, you urge them, you encourage them to know how to come back to God. So today we're talking about a prophet named Jonah. Some prophets are noted for their words, others for their actions, sometimes some very unusual actions on the part of certain kind of prophets. But sometimes, and in this case, this time, a prophet is known for his disobedience. Jonah is known for running for God, from God. Jonah is known for casting himself into the deep of the sea because he's caused a storm to happen on the seas and in the boat that he got in to get away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's known for being swallowed by a big fish. So this is a story that you may have heard in the, uh, in the past as a little child growing up, but it's an incredibly amazing story of the heart of God as well. God's heart, his compassion, his desire to help everyone know him well. And God will go to any direction, any distance to help bring back someone that's far from him or to bring back someone that has never known him. Jonah chapter one, let's stand together as I read the first four verses of the book of Jonah. Jonah one, verses one through four, as we kind of set this story up, that really at the heart of it is about the patience and the long suffering and the mercy of God. Let me just say this, at the end of it all today, you're going to hear about God's character. You're gonna hear that God loves you, that God uh, desperately wants a relationship with you, that God will go to the ends of the earth. He'll literally turn heaven and earth upside down in order to make himself available to you, to speak to you, to draw you. Now, that's a pretty big declaration of the love of God right there. Jonah chapter one, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now pause for a moment and think about a city whose wickedness has gotten God's attention. That's what's happening here with this old city of, of Nineveh. Verse three, it begins the wrong way. But Jonah arose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found the ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now that's not a good news verse. Anyone that reads that knows this is not a good response to a loving, merciful God who really wants to use the sky of Jonah in a big way. And Jonah just does not want any part of that and runs away. Verse four, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about 
to break up. Now, we're going to stop right there because I want to leave you in suspense. If you don't know this story, don't read any further. If you do know, know this story, then hold back your understanding so it can unfold with us together, all right? And at the end of this all, we're going to know exactly how God brings us back from disobedience. Father, in Jesus' name today, I pray for all of us, whether we have disobedience in our lives or not, whether the disobedience is big or small, whether we feel far from God or close to you. Lord, I ask you today to draw us all to the same place, to know you, to love you, to worship you, to surrender to you today. Speak to us in a personal way. I ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Well, most of us, when we talk about who we want to be like, we don't say Jonah. Most of us, when we think about fishing, we don't want to be on that end of the fishing story, right? I read some fishing stories this last week just kind of uh, to prompt me uh, in, in the sense of what we were reading this week and studying this week. You know, the largest fish ever caught on a rod and reel was 2,500 pounds, a 2,500-pound blue marlin. Man, that'd be a fight, wouldn't it? And they had, had the picture of that marlin up, and it could easily swallow a man. And uh, this is a small fish compared to a whale. So here we have this amazing picture of this man, Jonah, who's on the wrong end of the fishing story. Basically, he's the bait. He's the bait. The fish takes the bait and uh, carries him away. But what, what really got him to that place, what really is happening here in the book of Jonah, that, that he is characterized by the man swallowed by the whale, by the fish, and stays alive three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. What, what's happening in his life? Several things unfold here. If you begin with me in verse 1 of chapter 1, you'll see there's a call on his life, a powerful call. And Jonah knew what this was about. Jonah knew about God. He knew the Lord. Uh, God had used him at various times in the past, apparently, because he knows the character of God. And he knows what God is like. And that God calls him to go to this city of Nineveh, and he doesn't really want to go, even though the call is amazing. So here's Jonah knowing the character of God. Later in the book of Jonah, he'll say, you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Now, not everybody knows God like that. Sometimes people believe God is just a judgmental God, just a holy God separate from everyone else. And that is true, but some people feel like there's no way to bridge that huge gap between God and man. There is, and yet many don't know what that bridge is. Many people see God as that judgmental God, but Jonah knew him as a gracious and compassionate God, merciful, full of loving kindness, full of mercy. And he knows that that's the message that God wants him to speak. And I know we know that today because we live in New Testament times and we have not only the Old Testament revelation of Scripture and who God is, and God, of course, is holy and just, but he's also loving and merciful we know God doesn't want to punish us for our sin, but he's, he's also a loving, merciful God who desires for our sins to be paid for and for us to have a relationship with him. We read not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament. And the New Testament has this, this key phrase in it about Jesus. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, you finish it, but have everlasting life. That's what God's desire is. Paul says to Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. 
So when you talk about the heart of God and the character of God, God wants to be reconciled to man and he wants man to understand his love for them. So God says to Jonah, I want you to go to this city. It's got so much wickedness in it. Its wickedness rises up and I see it and I know it, but I want them to be reconciled with me. It's a powerful call. You and I have that same call in our lives, so I want us to get in the shoes of Jonah for a little bit today because we have the same call. Did you know that the cities in our world, the cities that we live in, have wickedness that is noticed by God as well? And everywhere we turn, every person we come across the path of is a person that needs to be reconciled to God. And God's made provision for that just like he did in that day. He has made it in this day as well. And it may even be that we're like Jonah and that there's a certain group of people we're not really interested in helping out. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because of who the Ninevites were. He didn't want them to have the same forgiveness that he had. But God, you know, we've been saying that a lot lately, but God, the comeback season is all about but God. Here is a dark, dark picture, a dark, dark time in our life, a tough season we're behind, we're behind so far, we don't even know how to make up the deficit, and then, but God. So Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but God is going to enter this picture. By the way, if you take a few moments and get your feet out from Jonah's shoes and put them in the shoes of the Ninevites, I would ask you the question, wouldn't it be important to you that someone like Jonah would come and talk to you about the loving kindness of God and the mercy of God? And if your life is surrounded by wickedness, wouldn't you want to know about the forgiveness of God? So we have this picture of a reluctant prophet, maybe even a little self-righteous prophet and a group of people that desperately need God. And this amazing call on Jonah's life, and it's a call that's on our lives as well. But notice what happens next. In verse three, we find this proud response. Instead of saying, yes, Lord, instead of the simple answer, instead of saying, okay, God, I get it. These people need you. They don't know about you. They're living in wickedness. It's not good for them. It's not good for anyone. I know you want to reconcile them to yourself. I get all that, God, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. The response, the proud response is that this man, Jonah, ran the other direction. Look at verse three with me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, running from God is always this way. If you're in disobedience today, you've, you've done it through a process of making decisions that gets you further and further away, really, from where God wants you. Notice the things about this verse. First of all, it's Tarshish. The Bible says that he rose up to flee to Tarshish. Three times the word Tarshish is used. Found a ship which was going to Tarshish to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The reason that city is emphasized is because this city is as far away from the Assyrians that Jonah can get. It's thousands of miles from where he needs to be. And in that day and time, Several thousand miles was quite an ordeal, but Jonah was willing to go the distance, whatever distance it was, to get as far away from those people as he needed to get because those Assyrians, he did not believe, needed salvation. They didn't need to know the mercy of the Lord. So what he does, he goes to Tarshish, which was as far away as he can get. Notice something else about verse three 
The Bible makes it very plain. He was going down. So he went down to Joppa. Notice he paid the fare himself and he went down into that boat to go with them to Tarshish. Never up. Nobody else pays the fare. He's paying for it himself. Let me just say to you right now, if you're a follower of God, there's no grace from God to get out of the presence of the Lord. There's no grace to walk into disobedience. There's no strength, no grace that God's going to give you to get away from Him. The only grace He gives you is to bring you back to Him, to get you back from where you are. And Jonah is paying for this trip by himself. And he's going down, 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 never up, up, up. Now thirdly, look what he's doing. The Bible says that he's running from the presence of the Lord. Twice we find that in verse 3 at the first part, and then finally in the last part, go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Now just, just look at me for a moment. Do you really think Jonah thought he could get away from the presence of the Lord? Do you really think that Jonah thought that one day that he would be so far away from God that God wouldn't bother him anymore, that God wouldn't speak to him anymore, that God wouldn't convict him anymore, that God wouldn't remind him anymore? Do you really think Jonah was ever in that place? Now, Jonah at this point had lost his ever-loving mind. You will never go away from the presence of the Lord. There's no place, there's no way on planet Earth or in, in the whole galactic system that you can get away from the presence of God. This is the God of all creation. When we walk away from God, when we walk away from obedience, we think sometimes we can get away from the presence of the Lord. But I want you to know today, there's no way that you could do that. Not even if you go to the depths of the deepest sea, can you be away from the presence of God? Know that. Remember that. If you're proud, like Jonah was in his proud response, you'll think that maybe God will leave you alone. If you're proud, you may justify in your mind why you're running from God. You may reason through your own mind there's a better plan, a different plan than what God has for your life. You may think, if you're proud, if you're thinking that way, that, that God has no right to send His mercy to these people or God has no right to call you to go. If you're thinking proudly, then you have another plan than God's plan A. But this proud response was a bad deal for Jonah and everybody else. You remember that old statement, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's so true. We see it over and over in the Bible. In James chapter 4, verse 6, there's a verse that I learned as a young man, and, and it, it impacted me powerfully. It says this, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I didn't know everything when I first read that verse, but I knew enough to know I didn't want to be on the opposite side of where God is. I wanted to be on God's side. But this verse tells me if I'm proud, not only does pride go before the fall, but if I'm proud, God will actually oppose me. Not just that I will fall, not simply that I will trip and stumble, but that God will push back, God will oppose me. Now, stumbling is one thing, tripping is another thing, falling is still a third thing, but being opposed by God, who wants that? And yet, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. What you read next is a warning. And that warning is a warning to me, it's a warning to you, it's a warning to the life of Jonah, who's going to demonstrate what a prophet ought not do, what a believer and follower of, of God ought not do. It's a warning that shows how God resists 
the proud. I mean, if God resists the proud, if God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, how would God resist or oppose pride in my life? So let's look at Jonah and how God did that in his life. Let's see what it says to you. This is what I call the painful lesson. As you move into these next few verses, you see the painful lesson of what God is doing in verse three and four. It's a very intimidating picture of how God gets our attention. First of all, notice that God sent a storm. In fact, the Bible says the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. That's in verse four. He hurled a great wind on the sea. I love this particular translation of the scripture. The word hurl stands out to me. He hurled a storm onto the sea. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We can, we can go places with that, but we're not, we'll not do that right now. He hurled a storm. The storm was there all of a sudden, all around Jonah. The, the seas are beating on the sides of that boat, about to break up the ship. So God sent a storm. Secondly, God appointed a fish. The Bible says, if you jump down to verse 17, that in this storm, the captain of the ship knew the ship was about to go down and Jonah volunteers that he should be cast into the sea. So they picked up Jonah in verse 15, cast him in the sea and the sea stopped, it's raging. And uh, then in verse 17, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I want to pause here. How can you not pause on this verse, right? You have to pause on this verse. Because when you read it, you say, what did God do? God appointed. It doesn't just say that Jonah was swaddled by fish. It doesn't just say a whale came along and it was feeding hour, so he ate Jonah. It doesn't say any of that. It says that the Lord, that God anointed, appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. This is no random meal. This is not an angry whale. There's a historical story of a man named Jonathan Bartley. He was a harpooner of whales. And as this whaling vessel harpooned one whale at one particular time in a previous century, the whale uh, was not mortally wounded, but turned and charged the boat, broke the boat up. This man went into the sea and was swaddled by this particular whale. And later on, he got out still alive. And the description of this man when he got out was that his skin had been so eaten by the internal digestive juices of, of what was in the belly of that whale, that his skin was, was white and pale and all shrunken like an older person's skin, a really, really, really old person's skin. His, his hair was all bleached white, uh, that he had all kinds of sores all over his body, and he was a, a freakish looking man when he got out of there. I think about Jonah, and I think he had to look something like that at the end of this whole ordeal. But this whale is appointed. If you do that word study on the word appointed, you'll see that it means literally what it says, that God told the whale to swallow Jonah and take him where Jonah refused to go. Now, I've had people say to me when I talk about this, a whale story? I don't know, that seems kind of uncommon, doesn't it? But everything's uncommon with God, amen? This is the God who spoke and the formless mass before the earth was created came together and now it's what we call earth. This is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the God that said, let the dry land be divided from the seas, and it was so. He's the one that created this place. Even Jonah said, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
So the God we worship is the God that parted the sea when he needed to in order to rescue his people. This is the God who made the sun stand still in order again to rescue his people. He speaks, and the invisible wind blows the leaves of a million trees all the time, and we see it, and we know it's God. How is it hard to believe that a whale will swallow this man at the command of the Lord? It's not hard to believe. That's what I call a divine Uber app. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard for me to believe that I can pick up this phone and I can push a few buttons and uh, magically a car will arrive and take me where I need to go. A divine Uber app would be like set pickup location, middle of the sea, set destination, the beach at Nineveh, choose the vehicle. Let's go with the big fish option today. Why not? God can speak and the fish is ready at the pickup point to take Jonah where he needs to go. Now this is not a convenient thing for Jonah. It's a painful thing. And all that's going on with Jonah as this vehicle of God's transportation takes him to Nineveh is pretty amazing. Look at chapter two for just a moment. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Let me just say that this is the first time we see in the book of Jonah that he's praying to God. He's been refusing God. He's been saying no to God. He, he's been, been denying what God wants him to do, arguing with God. But now, because he's in the belly of the whale, the Bible says he begins to pray to the Lord. That's a good, good idea. It really is a smart, wise idea. Verse two, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. We can go on and on and read these amazing verses. Look at verse five. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Look down in verse seven. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then after all this, in verse 10, it says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now these are not really church words. The Lord hurled the wind. The whale vomited him up on the dry land. It's really not normal conversation, but this is not a normal event. God appointed the fish to do all kinds of amazing things in Jonah's life. I want you to think with me for a moment about how this fish and even this painful process is, in a sense, God's grace on Jonah and others. It's grace because God stops Jonah from going further than he's gone. It's grace because God brings him back, returns him to where he's supposed to be. It's grace because God's still going to save the Ninevites, which is his heart. It's all grace. And sometimes our pain is grace and we don't know it. Sometimes the whale is grace and we don't know it. We rarely see the whales in our lives as moments of grace bestowed on us by God. The thing that swallows us up, we don't see as grace at first, but often it's the grace of God to get us where we need to be. The next time you feel like you're being swallowed up by something, keep that in mind. You may not ever encounter a whale, and I hope you don't, at least not from the water side, not from the bottom side, but I hope that when you encounter being swallowed up by something in your life, you'll remember the God of Jonah who heard him in the middle of that ordeal. You need to remember him. 
So here's what we have. We have this painful lesson. God sent a storm. God appointed a fish. And God may not have a whale for you, but he may confine you for a time out to think for a while, just like Jonah did, three days, three nights. So finally, Jonah obeys outwardly. Outwardly. And the city experiences great revival and is saved. Consider this, that when Jonah stopped running from God, the city experienced revival. At 120,000 people came to know the Lord. From the leader of Nineveh to the least of Nineveh, all of them repented. All of them came to know the Lord. But Jonah is still miserable and he's still angry. So Jonah's obeyed God outwardly, but he hasn't done it inwardly. He's done it outwardly. He goes and preaches the message that God wants him to preach to the Ninevites, but inside he's bitter and inside he's angry and inside he's arguing with God. Have you ever done that in your life? You said, well, God, I don't want to do this. I don't like to do this, but I'll do this because you tell me to do it. But I'm going to be mad about it all the time I do it. Have you ever done that in your life? Have you ever grudgingly obeyed God? And there's a grimace on your face and people think, what's their problem? Oh, I'm just obeying God. You got a strange way of obeying God. On the outside, we say yes. On the inside, we resist, we push, we say no. And I want you to know today something that all of us need to learn, that 90% obedience is still disobedience. 90% obedience, 95%, 97, 98%, 99.9% obedience is still disobedience to the God of the universe who doesn't just know your geographical location and the words that you say, but who knows your heart. And that's what he wants. And that's what he deserves. The Jonah got up and went into this city. And the good side of this is he had a kingdom conversation with 120,000 people that changed the nation. He introduced the idea of God. He introduced the idea of repentance. He introduced the idea of judgment, and the people said, we're going to repent, and they did. But on the other side of this all, Jonah is still upset. Jump down to verse 1 of chapter 4, because at the end of this repentance of this city, Jonah is still miserable. And so God raises up a plant. Look in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. Look, Look at the first six verses. But it greatly displeased Jonah that is, that the city of Nineveh repented. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Which shows us the conversation that Jonah had with God. Therefore, in order to forestall this, to keep these people from repenting, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? And Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it under the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And look at this next line. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now I want to see if I can put this in perspective because it's hard for me to believe. He obeys God, 120,000 people repent and will not be destroyed. They will not be perishing. And he's mad about it. The plant grows up and gives him a little shade. He's extremely happy. Let me ask you a question. 
You think this guy might be a little bit selfish. I mean, am I the only one that sees that in his life? I think the whole purpose for the plant is to demonstrate to Jonah that, well, you may have obeyed me outwardly, but you're extremely selfish. A little comfort for you, and that's what makes you happy. Not the comfort for 120,000 people that now know me. God raises up the plant as an illustration to Jonah of his wicked, prideful heart. And then in verse 7, God brought forth a worm. I know that sounds like the King James, but it really is what he did. He brought forth a worm. Look in verse 7. The Bible says, Then God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and attacked the plant, and it withered. And then God sent a scorching wind, verse 8. And in that verse it says, that when the sun came up and God appointed a scorching east wind, the sun beat down on Jonah's head so he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Can you just see this process? So he's disobedient to God. God sent a storm. God appoints a fish. Then he becomes obedient outwardly, but he's still miserable. God raised up a plant. God brought forth a worm. God sent a scorching wind. And all of these elements do what God says do, but Jonah still does not. All the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we find this is true. How is it that God can use a storm, use a fish, use a plant, even a lowly worm, even the wind, and they all obey him, but the man, the man refuses to surrender? It's a pride, it's stubbornness, and what God calls stiff-neckedness, where you're stiff-necked people. God, I don't even want to look where you want me to look. Sometimes when I read the book of Jonah, I say, what's my excuse? Jonah kind of reveals ourselves to ourselves. He kind of strips us bare. Because how many times do we do what God wants us to do on the outside, but not on the inside? And then we get to this place in this text that gets really, really personal, and that's called the personal surrender. Because in verse 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 4, God speaks to Jonah in a very intimate way. He said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. Get the picture here. God is tearing away at the outer coverings, digging layer by layer and exposing the heart of Jonah before saying, here's the problem. Here's the problem. That ever happened to you? It's happened to me when I'm alone about personal, private issues in my life. Times I don't want to obey God. I mean, it's easy to obey God on Sunday. It's easy to obey God during the week and act the part of being a God follower. But when God begins to tap on that thing that's in your heart or in your mind, a habit you have, part of a lifestyle that doesn't line up with his word, relationships that are broken, bitterness and unforgiveness that's still drilling into your soul, when God begins to touch that, man, we get sensitive. We get a real little relief from that, and we're extremely happy about that, but when that relief goes away, we're mad again. Take my life. God gets personal. 
God was saying to Jonah, you're far more concerned about your personal comfort than the grace of God on the nations. God says to Jonah, I want all of your heart. I deserve complete surrender from you because I'm God. Only in complete surrender can we care for and reach out to a lost and dying world. We're not going to do that if we don't have complete surrender. We must be all in. We were studying this text this week with our, several of our staff members and one of the comments that was made was a very good comment. The comment was, don't be too quick to judge Jonah. We're, we're quick to hop on the anti-Jonah wagon. Don't be too quick to do that. And the reason that you don't want to be too quick to do that is because there's a lot of Jonah in all of us. There are always those people that we don't really love. Those people that we don't really care for. The people that we won't go out of our way to even say hello to, much less to show the grace of God to. We, we don't need to be too, too judgmental on Jonah because we've got our own issues there. But the answer for all of us is the same. The answer is the same compassion that God gave us, we want to share it with everyone else. We have to ask the question, do we want God to work through us or in spite of us? Now, Jonah's story doesn't really end with clarity. In fact, some, some theologians, some commentators would say Jonah had to at some point have repented later on after the story is over. And his heart was more fully engaged with the Lord. Others say Jonah never repented, but the scripture doesn't really tell us. So there's kind of an, a question mark at the end. What does Jonah do? Swallowed by the whale, vomited up on dry land, obeys outwardly. God raises up all these elements to rebuke his heart and say, it's really your heart I want. I want all of you. What does Jonah do? I think this is interesting because we don't see what Jonah did, but we can determine what we do. I don't know. I can't help Jonah at this point. You can't help Jonah. We don't know. But we do know how we can fill in the blank to our heart and our lives when God speaks to us about total surrender. I would suggest a three-word response. I surrender all. That's so appropriate. I surrender. I don't hold anything back. It's a decision I make on myself, on my own. I don't hold anything back. I surrender. I put it all on the table. All of it. Not just my outward obedience, but my inward attitude, my mindset, my perspective, my opinion. I put all that on the table. I, because nobody else can do it. Surrender, because that's what God asks. All, because that's the call. I surrender all. I don't know today if you've ever come and surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're in the New Testament era now, and we have a Savior who came and died on the cross for us and paid for our sins, who showed to us the mercy and compassion and kindness and forgiveness of God, who offers us eternal life if we just put our faith and trust in Him. I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you haven't, today would be the day to say, I surrender all to that Savior, to that one who died for me. It may be as a believer today, so those say, I surrender all about the thing that you're holding back, whatever that might be, the attitude, the perspective, whatever it is, whatever the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about today, 
That's what you need to give to God because I can't put my finger on that point in your life, but God can, just like he can do it in my heart. He can do it in yours. I surrender all. Would you bow your heads for just a few moments? And as you bow, our prayer counselors will come to the front. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then we'll stand and we'll sing a very brief, brief song. And that song is an opportunity, an invitation to say to God, I surrender all. We do it because he's worthy. We do it because he's God. We do it because we're called. I surrender all. It may be the hardest decision you've ever made, but it's the best decision you'll ever make to say to the God of the universe, I surrender all. Father, in Jesus' name today, as we sing and as we fill in the blank in our own heart, I pray that you'll draw all of us to surrender all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.